Thank you for tuning into our Podbean subscription. We hope that you enjoy the message and we trust that God will speak to your heart. If you would like to sow into the ministry of Rebirth, please feel free to do so. You will find our banking details along with our PayFast link in the sermon description. Now, let's get straight into this week's message. serve an awesome God family. We serve a mighty God. We serve a mighty God. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Sister Pilele, for blessing us. Family, good morning, good morning, good morning. It is such a privilege, such a pleasure to stand here before you. Just want to thank the leadership for giving me the opportunity to stand here and deliver God's word. Don't take it lightly, as always. But I promise that I will be in and out like a bank job today. I will try my best to get you out here before the seven-color lunch is ready. And uh, so, in essence, this is the first message of the year, family, and um, we want to go into this year thematically in the month of January, setting the tone for what we are expectant from God for this year. And I don't know who's expecting great things from God this year, but I certainly am. I want to have a different year than I did last year. I want to have a level of depth with God that I didn't have last year. I want to know Him more. I want to have less of His hand and more of His face. I want to know God this year. And if you're going to come along with us, that is my prayer for the church this morning. So thematically, the first message of the year is the mission of the church. The mission of the church, and this is vitally important to start off this year because we are here in this building, not because we want to tick a register and say we've gone to church, we've done our religious duty, but there's a purpose and a mission that God has set aside. God calls the church his bride, and for those who are married, for the gents who are married, you will understand that wedding day. uh, My wife will, will, will tell you, on my wedding day, I cried from the day I saw her until about a week later. There's, there's just something about that moment, about that anticipation that we will go and meet him, the bridegroom and the bride finally meeting. And this is the importance of the church. And I just want to hopefully uh, just expose us a little bit about what God has said about uh, or, or, or the expectation of what he has for his church and for his believers. But you can't speak about the church and the, the mission of the church without speaking about the the, the um sort of our commitments as believers to the church. These two are mutually exclusive to each other. The church and the believer are one in the same. Now, I'm going to be reading from the book of Acts. And just to give some context, so I'm a little bit afraid, Pastor B, to, to do another survey or another <laughs> poll from the last time when we had asked some questions. Uh, if you guys will recall, uh, at the last venue that we were at, we had read through the book of Acts. And I think in my work with Christ, I think, Inadvertently, Bev, what you had tried to stir up there is who could read the book of Acts the most in, I think, a month. And I think I got through it um, seven times, and even my wife was like, can you put the Bible down and, <laughs> and pay some attention to me? But I think there was some healthy competition, yeah. and I think out of the Bible, that's probably one of the books that I understand so much more, reading it continuously. And we had done a little uh, question and answer just to see who understood it the most and it was really a beautiful time in the church I'm not going to do that today but I'm going to summarize quickly what the book of Acts is about now for those of you uh, avid Bible scholars you will understand that uh, you know it's the fifth book of the New Testament you get the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, John 
then you get the book of Acts. The book of Acts acts as a bridge between the Gospels and between the Epistles. So the Epistles make up the majority of the New Testament. But uh, it basically records the activity of the early church as it expands demographically. So demographically is, you know, it moves from the Jews, the Gospel was given to the Jews, and it moves from the Jews to the Gentiles. And you find the, uh, the book of Acts split in two. Uh, you can split it in two, looking at the ministry of Peter and then the ministry of Paul. You find the ministry of Peter then to the Jews. And likewise, then Paul takes the, the, the gospel to the Gentile nations. You'll find his, his, uh, his journeys throughout, um, throughout um, Asia Minor and then the known world. And um, so it's a canonical gap between the gospels and the letters. And um, also it talks about the early development of the church. So when we want to see how church should be done, and today we've got so many different, um, what's the word, different types of churches. You Catholicism, Pentecostalism, uh, Anglicanism, there's, there's countless amounts of different types of churches where we ideally should have gone back to the Bible and said, how do we model church? But if we were to look back at, at Acts, um, Bevan and I were having a conversation and we said it will seem like witchcraft if we were to go back and look at what the book of Acts was. Shadows were healing people and the things that they were doing, people were listening to sermons all night. We, we don't do this level of church anymore. And when we look at church, we compare ourselves to mega churches and to other different types of denominations. But how is church modeled in the book of Acts? And that's where we look. We look for our model and how we should do, do, do church. So uh, Acts has a couple of leading themes. And those leading themes are the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's often called the Acts of the Apostles. You know, when you read the, 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 the superscript on the, on the book of Acts, it says the, the Acts of the Apostles. And yes, in a sense, it was the Acts of the Apostles. But it really is the, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. This is the, the Holy Spirit empowering mankind. You find the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God falls on man. 3,000 people are saved. The church starts and this explosion just happens at the Roman Empire stops even persecuting them and adopts the church and you find that you look in church history and you see how the church went from from this in the book of acts to roman catholicism and then we, what we get today and people get stuck at um, at certain points so the um, pentecostal church got stuck at the day of pentecost and never progressed from then you find these different denominations martin luther and the reformers um, broke off from the catholic church and then uh, the great reformation happened in their time so this is church history, but you find these themes. Um, you find the missionary journeys of Paul, so you'll see his, his journey in, in any sense. The book of Acts was written as a defense for Paul because Paul is on trial. Paul is going to be killed, and, um, and it's written by, uh, by one of the disciples, but also it's written as a defense for Paul as well, as just um, canonizing the, uh, the history of the church. And also, it talks about the church and its mission. Jesus gives a great commission and says, go from Judea, Samaria, and all the world and preach the gospel. Now, I want to ask a question, and an honest question that I had to ask myself this week. When last have you shared the gospel with somebody? There's a song of the Winans that says, go and tell somebody. Tell them that Jesus loves them. And we need to ask ourselves, this is our commission. This is our number one goal, is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, because he's coming back soon. And when last have we done this. When last have we told somebody about the goodness of God? Do we keep this light, this little light of mine? Even the children can sing that song. Do we hide it under the baskets? Or do we put it on a hill for all men to see? We live lives, we live public lives. Public lives professing Christ to all who would hear. And even if people don't want to hear, we will tell. Noah preached for 120 years the gospel and not one person believed him except his family. 
and his family probably just went by grace also. But Noah preached for 120 years. Can you imagine standing at a pulpit 120 years and nobody believing you? But he done it nonetheless because he was, he was uh, obedient to God. So I went to go service the car also, and I was prompted by the Holy Spirit just tell this man because he was looking at me and he started swearing and I'm like, does this man feel comfortable because maybe he sees my tattoos and he's like, ah, colored bruh, ah, no, F-bombs, F-bombs. And I'm like, no, bro, listen, I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a man of God and let me just tell you about Jesus. And I managed to share the gospel with this man and, um, and then I was challenged, like, when last have I done that? When last have I actively done that? When I was first saved, anybody can get it. Anyone is like, hey, good morning, neighbor. Hey, let me tell you about him, like a Jehovah's Witness. Anybody who, wants, who, who can will get the gospel. And where did, it go, where did it go a bit astray? So my challenge for you this year is tell at least one person. Take somebody with you. Take somebody with you. Don't be like Samson who went empty-handed into heaven. Went to the wedding feast with no presents. Let us go into heaven with the soul because this is the currency of heaven. This is what God values. So that is my encouragement is tell somebody the gospel. Share with them that Christ loves them, died for them. And, and um, you know, all of, you'll make a way and you'll do these things. This is what we need to share with people this year. So the church. So when we look at the church, you look at it in two different levels. You have a macro level. Macro, if you remember, economics is the big picture. You know, macroeconomics is the, the broader global thing. And the church on a macro level is the global church. Church in China, church in South America, church in South Africa. This is the global church that we all belong to, the body of Christ. You've seen Revelations where it says there was a great multitude before the throne. All nations, kindred, tribe, tongues, everyone. You find Aborigines, you find South Africans, you find Russians, everyone around the throne of God, the great multitude. That is on a macro scale, the church. And on a micro scale, you find the micro church. And this is the building we're sitting in now. This is the gathering of the saints here. And uh, when my wife and I got married, we were fortunate enough to have gone to Greece. And uh, we had asked the guy for directions. And I remember he was speaking. He's trying to speak Greek to me, but he's giving me directions. And I remember one word that came out of there. And he said, Ecclesia, short left after robots. Uh. <laughs> I remember that one word, Ecclesia. And I'm like, I said to my wife, he's like, yo, he said by the church, short left after robots. And I was like, okay, we know where to go. And the word Ecclesia is the Greek word for church. But in the sense that he was using it, he meant St. Paul's Church after the robot, right? So he's talking about the, the actual building. But family, the church is so much more than that. When we come to church, we need to understand that we don't come to church. The church comes to Vintage Tower. Yeah. We are the church. You are the church. And this is the important thing to remember that says that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple, the indwelling, that the mystery, the great mystery that the creator of heaven and earth, the universe, everything that has mattered today, nothing from, something from nothing. This is the Holy Spirit, the God that indwells us. We become the dwelling place. This was God's original intention when he made, uh, when he led the Israelites out of, uh, out of Egypt. And he said, go and build a tabernacle, Moses. And he put the tribes around there, which was representative of heaven, the four living creatures around. And he made heaven and earth, and he dwelled in there. Then he dwelled in the tabernacle. And uh, then he dwelled in, you know, he eventually got to where, where, um, where David's son had built him a church. And then he eventually became, we became the church of God. This is what God's initial intention was, that we become the church. So when we're understanding church, we need to understand from a different perspective that we are the church. And what I want us to look at in the book of Acts, I'm going to try and exposit just two passages of scripture from Acts and from Hebrews. And I want us to look at one aspect. Uh, it's such a vast topic, I couldn't cover all of it. But uh, if you can turn with me, open your Bibles to the book of Acts, and we'll be looking at the second chapter from verse 42. When you're there, please give me an amen. 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 And uh, Pilele, can you give me an ameni? Amen. 
<laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> okay, so we're reading from verse 42, but before we get to verse 41, this is the establishments of the church. The church is born here in Acts 2. Now, verse 41 says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Then we get into the text. Your superscript may say the fellowship of the believers, but it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying uh, the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Amen. God bless to us the reading of his word. Now, what strikes us in this passage? You will see there, I've, I've accentuated my voice at specific points. It talks about fellowship. It talks about all believers together, everything in common, meeting together. They ate together. They gave to all who had need, and they had favor of the people. What strikes you there is they had a common shared life. Yeah. And this is the expression of fellowship. Breaking bread at the Lord's table, that is the first ordinance. And prayer was also an expression of fellowship as well. So... The first expression of the life of church was mutual commitment. And what we need to understand here, and the, 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 the mindset we need to have here is a mutual commitment to each other, to loving one another. Bevan quoted it earlier. He says, by this you will know that you are my disciples. That what? That you love one another as I have loved you. Yeah. This is the sign of fellowship. This is a sign that we belong to him. So all the believers will get together in verse 44, right? Um, they also held all of their possessions in common trust. So they pulled all of their resources together for all who had need. They would gladly sell whatever they had. They were also daily continuing in one mind, having meals from, the house, of, uh, from house to house with gladness and sincerity of heart. This is a community of people that were committed to one another. How we've lost this in today's society where we have a heart for each other. We have a love for each other, especially those in the faith. If you see a Christian in need, number one, we should be giving, we should be loving, we should be opening our hearts, opening up our homes, doing for others. When there's a need, we should be first to run. This was the heart of these people. You look at this and whenever something is repeated or a theme is repeated, God is telling us to pay attention to, to, to this in the Bible. So he's talking about all of them together, all in one mind. And I made the joke before they said that... Um, how do we know what car the apostles drive and they were in one accord? They drove a Honda, so <laughs> they, they were in one accord. And their one accord actually means that they were all of one mind, one heart, one soul, one spirit. They were part of one body. And this is the important part that we need to understand. What is the heart of the start of the church here? And how do we emulate that in today's time? Because this was written for us, but not written to us, right? So as we understand, the first rule of biblical interpretation, who was the initial audience? Who was the people that this was written to? So this was written to the church of the time, but also understanding we as a contemporary church, today's church, how do we emulate what is in the Bible? So we need to understand that fellowship is partaking, contributing, sharing together in common partnership and common cause. There's like-mindedness, there's one heart, one spirit. So the verb of fellowship, in, in the Greek. Uh, it's pronounced koinoneo, and 
This is the verb of fellowship, right? It's, it's mentioned eight times in the New Testament. Seven times it's translated as share. Fellowship means to share. The one other time that is mentioned in, in 2 John 11, it's basically common participation. So you understand that fellowship, when you understand what fellowship is, it's more than just eating cook sisters after church and having a conversation. Fellowship is sharing what you have. It is putting yourself second. It's giving of yourself. It is supporting out of yourself because the first two commandments, Jesus says, these two commands, if you've done these, you've fulfilled all. And it's love God with all your heart, mind, soul, spirit, everything you have. And the second is like unto it. To love your neighbor. To love your neighbor. And this is the heart and soul that God has poured into the church. This is the mindset that he needs us to have going into this year. The, uh, so that is the verb. The verb is to share. The noun is koinonia. It's used about 30 times in the New Testament. And it's the same idea. And sometimes translated as sharing or contributing or partnering or participating. We have us who have been in church for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. And our contribution is showing up and signing a register. Now, I'm not poking anybody. If I am, please run the car. I might offend some people today. But I want to just share my heart and also share... Um, this one's fine? It's fine. Okay. Yeah, it is. Sorry. I'm, um, thanks, Chad. Um, so, I want to share my heart and share what the Bible is, is, is expressing here. What is God's heart towards His church? This is His bride. And for those who love their wives, you'll understand that you would kill. You would lay your life on the line for your wife. What does Christ view his church as? How does he view? He says he's coming for a bride, unspotted, unblemished, untouched by this world. Yeah. This is the bride he's coming back for. Christ loves his church. He loves you with an undying love. So what is God's rational Christianity, right? So God is, so the image of God, right? So when you look at the image of God, God made man in his own image. Likewise, God is a relational God. God is relational, and we understand that from in the beginning, the first mention of God is, plur is plural. When he said, come, you know, in the beginning, God, he's talking about the name for God is plural. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before anything was, God is in communion with himself. He was in relationship with himself. God spoke to himself. God had conversation with himself. He enjoyed his own company. This is the God that we have. So his nature is relational. Therefore, when he made us, he made us relation relational. The worst punishment that prisoners have you know what's the worst punishment? It's not flogging or getting beaten or anything. What do they do? They, yeah. they put you in solitary confinement. They put you in a dark room by yourself for a month and see what that does to you. Lack of fellowship. Lack of fellowship will kill you. And that's why one of the tools of the enemy today is he will isolate you. When you're going through a hard time, even as a Christian, you put your phone on silence, you lock the door, you close the curtains, you keep away from people. And I've done this. I've been in the situation. You just don't want to tell anyone. I've got no mood for anyone. And what happens is isolation draws you away because fellowship uh, excludes you from encouragement. It excludes you from, from uh, the joy and, and, and the blessing of, of being around people. Go around people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with God, and you come out of the encouraged. We know when you encourage somebody, somebody's going through a hard time, you yourself are going through a hard time, but you speak to them and say, listen, you know, God will make a way. He'll make a way. He done it for me. He'll do it for you. This is the God we serve. He's a God who wants to bring you out of the mighty clay. And when you do that to somebody, you walk away even more encouraged than them. You're like, I can do this, actually. I've got, you know, you've got that pep in your step. This is the blessing of fellowship. There's something programmed into us. We cannot be alone. We, we are not an island. I've tried it. Many of us have tried being alone, but we cannot be alone. We need somebody. We need somebody. So go out and reach out to somebody. Encourage them. Lift them out of that dirt. 
This is what God has intended for us, that we be that, that one that brings us out. So God is relational. Um, so when you see in the book of Acts, it's intensely, intensely relational. It's not a spectator sport. Yeah. When you come to church, you're not a spectator. Let the praise, work, praise team sing alone. Yeah. We should not even need them. If the electricity goes off and the piano stops working and the guitar's not working, we are the ones who are singing to God. You don't see any idle hands in heaven. This is the truth of it. The, somebody said that the, the, the church is not a cruise ship, it's not the MSC, it's a battleship. There's no demilitarized zone like between North and South Korea. There's this place in the middle that they put minefields, that even vegetation has grown back. There's no space like that in the kingdom of God. There's two sides. There's no neutral side that I'm going to blow them a little bit and I'll come back. No, there is, this is a war, this is a fight, and this is what we need to understand is that if you're part of the body, it's like, you like, you know, when your body's fine, you are fine. But wait until something starts failing. Like I had injured my leg when we played soccer and I just like, yo, I miss my legs. You know, like you miss having the full functionality of your body. Now, if you are the leg, if you are the eye, how does the body function? There's talents and, and, and such blessings and anointing and, and grace on your lives. And you're excluding us from enjoying that. If Pelile had to not sing today, like we will not enjoy that. If Pastor Bevan didn't share his preaching gift with us, we would not be a full body. It's like the leg deciding that I'm not going to function today. One eye not functioning. You understand this when you lose the functionality of your body parts. This is your duty and role in the church. We need what you have and what God has blessed you with. Oh, but he preaches better than me. She can sing. It doesn't matter. We'd rather have that. There's squeaky voice, but a voice that loves God and ushers in the presence of God than somebody who can sing. And this is what God is calling us to do. So as a case study, I want us to look at something. And what is the question I ask today is what is the evangelical church view on this, on this passage that I've read now? And evangelical basically is Bible-believing, gospel-believing church. So the church that we, we belong to. What is the evangelical view across the body of Christ? How do they view this? How church should be done? So the com contemporary evangelical world has lost this great reality. And I feel that we've lost this reality of how church should be done because we look at how church is done and we, 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 we're falling very short of where we should be. And because it appeals to people on the basis of what they want. When we preach the gospel, it is not come to the cross Take up your cross and follow me. You know when he said that, how offensive that was to the people who heard it? Because their auntie got crucified. Your mother got crucified. You know, you knew people who were crucified. The Romans crucified people. See what they've done. Go and read church history and see that they threw people in the Colosseum with lions and let them chow them. Like they call them Roman candles. They put people on spikes and burnt them. Christians would line up Nero's house. Nero, these people, these people are horrible. And now when you say, take up your cross and follow me, it is offensive. It's like yeah. saying, take up your cancer and follow me. Yeah. It's offensive because somebody you, you loved has died from this. So this is not the Christianity that we preach today. It's come to Christ and he'll give you the desires of your heart. He will, he'll, you know, in the sense that he'll make a way, he'll, he'll clear the path for you, he'll clear your debt, he'll do all of these things. Hey. And when you come to, to Christ and you realize he's not doing these things, but you're suffering yeah. because yeah. the Bible says that you will suffer for my yeah. sake. You will suffer. You will, this is a, it's burdensome, but my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Yeah. And we, because... Modern evangelical churches are preaching this version of Christ. Come to Christ and He'll make all things good for you. You know, all things will work out for your favor. And you know, this, this lopsided view of the gospel. But what the actual gospel is saying is, no, that you must suffer for my sake. You'll be rejected as well, but take heart that I've been rejected first. They hated me, so therefore they'll hate you. This is what we're signing up for. We're not signing up for a life of uh, bliss and happiness and, and riches. No, 
you see people are selling their stuff, not trying to accumulate more stuff. They're giving their things away so that the body can have. This is the original church. So in the 1980s, um, there was a Jewish humanist by the name of Neil Postman who wrote a very interesting book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. You can go and try and, and, and read it. So we basically spoke about the epic tragic loss of, of serious thinking in Western civilization. So he said, serious thinking is being replaced by, by entertainment. In specific, the mind-crippling power of TV, television. And he said, critical thinking has been affected by television. But at least TV is a group experience. This is the one redeeming quality of television that we can enjoy this thing together, you can watch it together, even though you see the effects of it on society today. Screens have become bigger and bigger and bigger, but in a minor sense, like I said, the one redeeming quality is that it's a group experience, but Neil Postman couldn't have believed in the 80s. He couldn't have imagined how big screen TVs have gotten. You go to, uh, to Monte Cassino, you'll see the size of TV, the size of a building. TVs have gotten so massive, but at the same time, you couldn't have imagined how paradoxically smaller they have gotten. And we all have them in our pockets. This little device. And the seduction has gone from a group experience to an intimate, personal, and private experience. We have now a secret world driven by algorithms, preferences, temptations, and secret relationships, a secret world that has a force and ubiquity that is unparalleled in human history. We've never seen anything like this before. Never seen anything. And we had a conversation recently to say, I can't connect to my kids. Teenagers these days. We struggle to connect with you because we don't understand what it's like to have a life driven by TikTok and the yeah. peer pressure of the selfies and yeah. or the dances and all of these things. We don't understand it because we grew up in a different era. Now we sounding like the old people. Yeah, yeah in my day, you're in your computer machines. We, we don't understand because ah, the old people, they're just making noise. But we don't understand you teenagers now. It's difficult to identify with you with the peer pressure because the peer pressure for us was one-on-one. -on -one. Hey, Jimmy's going to catch you after school. After school's after school. You have that peer pressure. But today we don't understand cyberbullying because somebody's on your case. Somebody's bullying you to the point and everyone's making memes of you and now you can't show your face at school. We don't understand this. It's difficult to identify because this macro thing has gone down to the size of a pocket-sized device and it's difficult to have fellowship when your mind is fellowshipping with social media. So society is seeing the results of this now. Suicide rates, we're seeing isolation, we're seeing all of these effects on society now because of this. And the seduction has gone from a group experience to an intimate, personal, and private experience. This is, so one thing that's been playing on my mind is that when you think of the Antichrist and uh, you think of, you know, the, of, of how Satan operates, you know, we shouldn't be ignorant of his devices. But in a sense, AI and the, the internet has a part to play in, 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 in the Antichrist agenda because Satan has found a way to be omnipresent. He's found a way to be God because he can be at all places at all times. What did Elon Musk do with the war in Ukraine? They didn't have internet, he supplied them. In. He's got thousands of satellites, Starlink, rotating around. He can supply internet to any space and spot on Earth. The North Pole, he can supply internet there. He's found a way to be omnipresent. Satan can be all places at all times. He can be all-knowing, omniscient. What do you do when you need something? I just Google it. Now I say, I've got Alexa, and I'm like, Alexa, what's the square root of 55 times 4? And I get the answer in five seconds. All-knowing. Even now you'll see, Bing, you'll type in something there. You'll type in, uh, like when I'm doing Bible search or whatever, I'll say, listen, what's the purpose of the church? And then you'll find an algorithm is copying everything from the internet. It's plugging into the internet, 
gathering all that knowledge and giving you, spitting out something. Um, Jordan Peterson also said something that he, he typed out into ChatGPT and he said, listen, what is the, the, the junction between the Sermon on, Sermon on the Mount and the, the religion of Taoism in this context? And he gave it and it spat out a 10-page essay in five seconds. This is where we've gotten to. So Satan has found a way to be omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipotent, all of the attributes of God through the internet. And we need to understand that even though it's a force for good, it can also be a force for evil. And we need to be aware of limitations. They say that the average teenager spends about eight to nine hours per day on the screen. And I don't mean to say teenagers. Some of us are just as guilty. We're also on TikTok. But... We'll leave that for another day, babe, the car, we, I, my wife ran away. <laughs> so the small screen is the most selfish necessity ever devised. Most selfish thing ever devised. We often disengage from each other, husband and wife, in a restaurant. We see this when we go out. Technology has put its hands on everyone, the most constant, incessant, accessible, visual, private world of a self-centered indulgence, temptation, and entertainment ever conceived. You will become a god in your own private cyberspace. This is the reality of where we are today. The theologian Carl Truman writes, the language of friendship is hijacked and cheapened by the internet social networks. We don't know what friendship is anymore. The language of social media both reflects and encourages childishness. Why does he say childishness? Childishness has become something of a textually transmitted disease, as he says. Why childish? Because the most identifi identifiable characteristic of a child is complete self-centeredness. My child doesn't care what time it is, three in the morning, daddy needs to wake up, I want my things now, doesn't matter. Ch children are self-centered. And we develop our frontal lobes and we become more aware, but it is the most childish thing that, that is, is brought about by, by social media. So, um, Carl Truman further says, such are non-human amoebas, subsisting in a bizarre non-world that involves no risk to themselves, no giving uh, of themselves to others, no true vulnerability, no commitment, no sacrifice, no real meaning, and no value. End quote. Real commitment requires real people. Yeah. And we've been robbed by social media and the internet of true commitments. When last have we had hour-long conversations with friends, now we type hearts, fire emojis. We, we short form, we don't have engagement anymore, we don't date anymore, we don't take girls out and take guys out anymore, we don't have this, this is why relationships are struggling, we don't have these issues. I met my wife on Tinder, so I'm, I'm just as guilty, but the conversations were very, were very long. So I said that to say this, is that fellowship requires Real commitment and real commitment from real people. And this is what we've been robbed of even in the church. We see the impact of the church. When the preacher's preaching, preaching, yeah, preaching fire from heaven, and people on Facebook in the church, and we see this happening. I'm not saying any of you are guilty of it, but these are things that are happening in church. People are so distracted. We have TikTok brains now, 10, second, 10 seconds. We must scroll because we can't. We've been reprogrammed. The mind is so easily reprogrammable. Yeah. We, don't, we can't sit through an hour sermon anymore, but we can sit through... You can sit through 10 second videos for 10 hours and it doesn't impact you because our minds are so captivated by this little box that has done all of these things. So this is the assessment of, of these theologians. So the nature of fellowship, how does, how does fellowship function in today's society? Verse 42 of, of, of Acts 2 says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. 
So they had shared everything in life. This is what it means to be a believer. Is the essence, if you boil it down, if you take nothing else from this, is that to be a believer is to share everything you have. This is what they did in the book of Acts. This is the model that we're looking. So everything you have, that car, that nice car that you don't want people to put footprints, that house that you don't want people to, to mess up, that, that nice thing, that, that money you have in your pocket that you're saving for those Jordans or that nice thing, whatever it is, everything we have. It says they pulled all their money and their resources together. Their houses weren't theirs own day. They, they ate at each other's houses regularly, every day. They prayed together. Their time wasn't theirs. Everything that you have in your life is to be shared. Now, it's a hard thing in this accumulation world. Get more. Get more. Save more. You ask yourself, why does Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos still work? The guys were $200 billion. That guy's great, 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 great. Down the line, children will never have to work a day in their lives. Why do you still work? Why do you need to still labor? There's no need for you to work. But such is the love of money that it blinds you so much. So everything we have, everything we have, that when you empty yourself out for a need for things, because I, I always share the story of, I heard this very sad story of uh, this guy who had retired and waited all his life to retire, got to 62, 63, whatever the age was, and on the day that he left work, goodbye everyone, had the cake, got his gift, walked home, had a heart attack and died. And you ask yourself now, we look at our pensions, I check my pension on there, it's growing nicely, my investments, whatever it is, you know, you're looking forward to that great day when you can chill. What happens if there has, the Lord has to call me home at 62, the day I'm walking home, babe, we can finally go and live in, in, in Spain, we can go live in Palito, we can chill on the beach all day, and the Lord has to call me back home. All of those, that money that I've saved, everything I've labored for, all the overtime, all of the, the labors of my, my sweat of my brow, my children can go and squander. So this is the thing, is that sharing in life, that is what it means to be a believer. Share yourself, share your time, share your heart, share your resources, everything. This is what the church is about. This is what church is about. It's not just coming here, signing a register, singing a song, listening to me preach, and, and forgetting everything, going home, having your Sunday lunch, and you move on with life. So Bonhoeffer states this. Because God has already laid a foundation of our fellowship, because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ, Long before we enter into common life with Him, we must enter that common life not as demanders but as thankful recipients. We thank God for what He has done for us. We thank God for giving us brothers who live by the call, by forgiveness uh, and by His promise. We do not complain of what God does not give us. We rather thank God for what He does give us daily. And, um, and brothers, is that, is that not enough what God has given us? Brothers, who will go on living with us through sin and need um, and, and underneath blessings of His grace? Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the common life, is not, sin, is not the sinning brother a brother with whom I stand to under the word of Christ? Will not his sin be constant uh, occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live um, the forgiving life of God in Jesus Christ. Thus, the very hour of disillusionment with the brother becomes incompatible salutary because it, is so thoroughly, it so thoroughly teaches us that neither of us can live by our own words and deeds, but only by the words and deeds which really binds us together. That is the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So, Aristides, who was a Greek writer, he wrote in ancient times about Christians, and he said this, he was a pagan, looking at Christianity from the outside in, trying to assess this, this movement, this thing that was happening. And he says, Speaking of Christians, 
They abstain from all impurity in the hope of recompense that is the life to come in another world. When there is among them a man who is poor and needy, and if they have not abundance of necessities, they fast for two or three days that they may supply the needy with, the, with what is necessary. Such is the law of Christians, and such is their conduct. They fasted when somebody didn't have food. I fast so that you may eat. Such is their conduct. This is the assessment of a pagan who looked outside in and said, this is what these Christians do. This is their conduct. How do we lose that? To think that Christianity is a way to become rich. Self-indulgence. The nature of fellowship is a shared life. Shared love and shared possessions. We've lost the book of Acts and how we're supposed to be conducting ourselves. So, what is our relation to this then? What is our response? We understand what's, what we should do. But, you know, there's a distinction between having a personal relationship with Jesus and, and necessarily belonging to a church. So I want to talk a little bit about the relationship of, of, of Christ and the relationship of the church. So some of us have personal relationships, and we've heard this before, that ah, I don't need to go to church. got my relationship with him. I log in to Rema online sometimes and you know I get my thing I don't need to go wake up go to church because it's a personal thing I've got my personal relationship with him and you know what is the, ne what is the necessity of belonging to a church is the question often asked so um, I'm going to read a little bit from Hebrews Hebrews 10 says this Hebrews 10 19 you can make a note you can turn there or I'll read it for us so this is very rich material when it comes to new covenant uh, in Christ with the old covenant so it's, it's, it's sort of the bridge between old and new covenant and the author of Hebrews is basically saying that, you know, sacrifices of the Old Testament didn't cover your sin. No matter how many times uh, blood was shed, um, you know, it'll never wash away your sins. The blood of goats and, and sheep weren't enough. And, uh, you know, how the old priesthood wasn't enough. We needed that, that final priest who was going to come was Jesus Christ. And, you know, the same sac sacrifices repeated again and again and again wouldn't uh, cure you of any, any sins. And then Christ comes. So Christ was the, the fulfillment of this. And, uh, you know, the book of Hebrews is written. So we need to understand context. The book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jews who were raised in the Old Covenant. They didn't know the book of 2 Timothy. They didn't know about the book of Revelation. It wasn't written yet. But these people were, were raised in the Old Covenant. So Genesis, Exodus, Prophets, all of these things, this is what they understood. So they understood blood sacrifices. So they had just had the gospel read to them now. The gospel was just preached to them. They're now understanding that there's a new priest, there's a blood that was shed for, for all mankind. And verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. So we understand in the Old Testament, nobody could go into the Holy of Holies. Even in heaven, people, we look at, we see this picture in heaven. And you see, uh, even in the... In the um, Ark of the Covenant, there's a, there's a picture, there's little uh, things on the Ark of the Covenant, you see there's God's throne, and then there's angels covering him. The cherubim cover him this way, the cherubim cover him this way, and God's glory is completely covered. Not for any protection of his own, but because he's, he dwells in unapproachable light. This is what the Bible says, that no one could approach him. He even said, Moses said, let me see your face, and he says, no one can see my face and live. So you have to understand that angels even had distance from him, which is where Lucifer would, would go into the presence of God and come and see the glory reflected on him. And this is where this, this, this pride came in. And you find that God dwells in unapproachable light. So you, you see that, um, you know, um, there was no way for us to go to God. So what, what the scripture is saying is that nobody could go to the Holy of Holies. The priest even would go there with a rope tied around his leg 
he would go and serve and do the things in the Holy of Holies. And if he was impure, that man will fall dead and they will just pull him out. We're not, going, we're not going to see what happened. We pull you out of there. Because such was the presence of God, such is the holiness of God, that he cannot tolerate sin. He cannot be in the same space as sin. But the priest would go in there once a year, sacrifice, and that would be every year thing. So, there was a veil that separated man from God. There was a space between us. There was one priest who went in once a year, and this symbolizes that there was no access to God. We need to understand that. Until the New Testament, no access to God. No access to God. So when Christ came, he sacrificed himself to pay the penalty of sin. He opened up a way to the throne of God, and symbolically, um, even the temple when he died, the temple was ripped, the veil was ripped from top to bottom, symbolizing that we now, we now have a way. That's why the writer says we now can go boldly into the throne of God. So the verse 21 says, Now having a high priest over the house of God, so he is there to bring us into the presence of God anytime and at all times. 2 a.m., you have access to God. 12 o'clock. When Generations is on, people still watch Generations. <laughs> when your favorite show is on, at all times we have access to that throne yes. because of Christ. Which is why we can go boldly, boldly to the throne of grace because we have an advocate, the man upstairs who stands in the middle and speaks on our behalf. So verse 22 says, let us draw near. So we have access to God. Therefore we go into his presence with sincere faith and acknowledgement of our sin and repentance. This is how we approach God. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he is prom who he who is promised is faithful. So we are saved, but the fullness of our salvation we haven't yet experienced. One day, the, the scripture says in 1 John 3, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it um, doesn't appear what we shall be, but, uh, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be just like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we come to the throne in faith and repentance and confessing unwavering uh, hope that God will complete his salvation on our behalf. This describes a personal relationship with Christ, which gives us access to God's presence, right? So the scripture doesn't stop there. So it's saying we have a personal relationship with God, each and every one of us. We can come to him at any time. But the scripture doesn't stop there. It doesn't say personal relationship, full stop. It says, verse 24 and 25, that foundational to this new covenant as our life as believers is personal faith, personal repentance and uh, living the uh, personal hope, right? But now, um, it says also, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves to join together. So there's a corporate responsibility as well in this. We've got a personal relationship with him. But also, addition to that, is that we have a corporate responsibility. That means we have a responsibility in a group. You yeah. can't be an island in your own. Yeah. This is where the church comes in is that we are called into a body. Often the scripture says that we are one body. We are baptized in one bapt uh, baptism, one body, one Lord, one faith. We are called into a body. So verse 24 says, And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as it is a manner of some, but exhorting one another, so much the more as you see the day approaching. That is the day of judgment. In essence, what he's saying here, family, is you don't neglect the joining of the saints. You cannot be an island on yourself. You have to be part of a church. And as controversial as that may sound, because now we have digital, and we just covered all of this digital space, and yes, we need to have a digital presence, and the apostles didn't have Facebook and all of these nice things. They didn't neglect the gathering of the saints, as is the, the habit of some. 
there is purpose. God doesn't mention anything just in general. We do not forsake the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some, but we need to exhort each other. There's purpose in gathering together family. There's a different blessing in corporate worship, in, in standing under the word of God. It says they committed themselves to the teachings of the apostles. Sound doctrine first. Sound doctrine. If you do not belong to this church, belong to a church. Find yourself a church that preaches the gospel unadulterated, that preaches Christ crucified and nothing else. If that's the only message you hear every single week, stay there. You don't have to hear acrobatics and there is a God somewhere. And you don't need all of the theatrics. You don't need all of the acrobatics. You need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached every week because the gospel is a power unto salvation. Nothing else saves you. Nothing else. Nothing else. There's some topics in the Bible that we can discuss and we can argue and debate about that. Okay, maybe we can, we can disagree on that if it's the, maybe the gifts of the Spirit. These are not redeeming things. But when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, who Christ is, who he called himself to be, he said, I am, you know, I am who I say I am. I'm the good shepherd. I am, I am all of these things, the seven I am. We understand who he is and any other gospel that is preached. Paul says, let him be cursed. Let him be an anathema if you're preaching something else because this is the one rock that we build our salvation on. Our lives depend on this family. God could call you today to glory and your life depends on it. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment you slip out of this life, you slip into eternity in front of the Lord and you can't dream. My prayer always is that, Lord, I can't lie to you. You know. You were there. You saw. I cannot lie to him. So, if God is calling you today, the only thing you can stand on is say, there's my representative yeah. who will hold your hand to the throne of God, defend you and say, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. This is the only hope that we have. So if you believe in nothing else, believe in the gospel of Christ. So I'm saying belong to a church, even if you don't belong to this church, belong to a church that preaches the gospel. So I want to just look at something quickly. Uh, I mentioned that, you know, this is just a building and we might move. But this is just a building. You are the church. Amen. We are the church. We don't come to church. Church comes here. You know, we belong to the Lord. And this is critical to understand that we belong to Him. We are purchased with a price. You are not your own. You are purchased. You are purchased. You are bought. You belong to Him. You are a servant. You are a slave. The scripture says, Dulas, you are a slave. You are a slave to Him. But what a good master we serve. Amen. Ephesians. Ephesians 4 verse 1. And I want to just look at Ephesians, the context of Ephesians, and I'm closing. Um, Ephesians 4 is an instruction to those who had also just heard the gospel. Ephesians 1 to 3, you know, the gospel is just preached to them. Ephesians 4 then starts with this. It says, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling that you were called. So you are not only in a personal relationship with God, but you also have personal responsibility to walk worthy. When people see us out there, is there a question of whether you're a Christian or not? Can people legitimately say that you're a Christian? We are responsible to walk uprightly. We are responsible. We have an accountability unto Him to walk according to this calling. We are called and we, call, and we have to walk uprightly. So Ephesians is saying that walk worthy of this calling. Walk worthy, you know, um, do it justice. Verse 2 says, with all lowliness, gentleness, and long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. So the assumption here is that we've been called to Christ. We've also been called into the church. And we have to walk in a certain way to manifest the calling and salvation. With, gent with gentleness, patience, tolerance. How often do we have that with each other, Christians? Somebody makes me mad, they threw a comment at me, or they shouted at me, or said something, or rebuked me, or the pastor never greeted me, or something happened, and we don't come back to church. 
And I saw this thing, it says, you know, we've got church hurts, but also you've got to work hurt, you go back there every day. If someone, if someone hurt you at the gym, someone guarded you at gym, ah, you only lifting 10 kgs, dog, like, you still go back there. We have hurts everywhere. We just live in a fallen world where we are prone to get hurt. Our parents hurt us so deeply. Our partners hurt us daily, but we go back because commitment requires you to endure, but with love and tolerance and long-suffering. This is what's required of Christians. We, that's the fruits of the spirits. Long-suffering, you endure with somebody. You've got to endure with your wife or husband for 30, 40 years. I, I can't imagine it yet, but it must be at the end. It's like, hey, I'm like, it was like we've, been, we've been on this long road together, but tolerance and love and long-suffering, we endure with each other. We endure because this is what the Spirit of God deposited in us. There's nothing of our own. God has given us this. So this is what we need to do with each other. Somebody offends you in church family, don't not come back. Don't walk away. You endure because you're not here for people. You're here for the love of God. And if you feel that God has called you here or called you to a church, but be part of a church. Because partially it's disobedience because the scripture tells us that, that partnership or belonging is required of us. We are required to belong to a church because this is where you submit yourself to the doctrines of the apostles. This is where you, you, you break bread with each other, you, you have the table of the Lord. All of these things take place in a church because his commission is his church to share these things. Uh, verse 3 says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in bond and peace. So when you come to Christ, you come to church. There's no such thing of a believer who's in Christ but not in a church. You are his church. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called into one hope of the calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all. So Paul is talking about the common life that we share here. Common life. One day we'll share common life in heaven. And when we're in worship, I just felt a touch of it. It's like this is going to be permanent. One sustained note. It's no time. You know, music is one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. There's no notes, no time. So it's one sustained note, A flat for the rest of eternity. And you get to spend that just in that eternal joy, the fullness, no restrictions, no veil, just with the King of Kings, that nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. It's just being in His presence because when you feel the presence of somebody, you know somebody big, if whoever it is in, in, in speaking, teaching, business, whatever it is, you feel the presence of somebody who is big. You feel their presence. When your father was around, you felt his presence. You feel the presence of your father. And that is what we will be enjoying for the rest of eternity. So. The church is also called the family with one father, a kingdom with one ruler, and branches connected to one vine. So it is a temple with all the stones being built together to build one edifice that is a dwelling place for God. Each and every one of us are brick, parts of one building. This is what God has called us to be. And the role of the church, also in terms of the local church. In Corinthians, you know, he says to the church of God, which is in Corinth, he's talking to a specific place in a specific location. It is a local church. So belonging to a church or church membership is essential. The New Testament and the book, uh, so after the book of Acts, so you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts. The rest of the books are written to churches because God has chosen his church to share his revelation. He's chosen his church to share his presence in a way that you will not experience in your own. The books that were written outside of Timothy and Titus, but those were written to pastors of churches. So the books were written to churches. Jesus, even in, the, in Revelation, he writes to the seven churches and he speaks to them directly. And he says, I find fault with you with this, but you've done this well. And he speaks to seven churches separated in, in Asia Minor. So um, Matthew 30, uh, 10, 32 says, whoever confesses me before men, him will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him 
will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So your confession of Christ must be public. This is, there's nothing private about your, your declaration. Do people know you're Christian is my question. At work. Or is it a surprise? Oh, I didn't even know that you are Christian. Do people know? Because it should be the, that should be the most public thing. Outside of our political aff affiliation, outside of the, the, the club we belong to, outside of any attribute that we hold in high esteem, the golf club, the fishing club, whatever it might be that we have out there, our political affiliation, you might be general so-and-so, Christianity and your belief in Christ should be the first and foremost thing people know about you. And the only thing is like, you're that man. It's like, Pastor Billy says this often. You know, when people go to him, go see those who met Pastor Billy will know that that man talks about nothing but Jesus. Yes. You'll be like, oh, did, did, uh, did you see X, Y, Z? Yeah, I know there's a scripture that it's always a way that he's bringing the gospel into a situation. This is just the heart of a man who loves God and it annoys some people. Maybe even some Christians because, and you, you, it can annoy some people, but rather, be, rather annoy people for your love of God because one day they will understand this is what he spoke about. I witnessed to somebody many, maybe 20 years ago and and maybe about five years ago he came to me he's like Yokran, remember those things you're telling me I've, I've given my heart to the Lord now and I understand and this was a Hindu guy and he came back to me years later after planting those seeds and he's like yo now I understand maybe I was annoying him and he's like yo this guy can you just let me go I just want to go drink or do whatever and I annoyed him but to the point of him understanding now when you feel the love of God share with somebody even if it's the worst gangster somebody's like ah you beyond repair dog you there's no hope for you those people will be the ones that get saved and those ones who carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. There's nobody out of reach of, 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 of the gospel of God. So it should be the most public thing about you. And the one thing that should dominate you is that you confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Yeah. So if you've joined the church, that is your confession that you've made. You've made a public confession that you have a relationship with Him. And that's what we do in baptism also. We make a public declaration that I belong to God. So back to Acts 2, uh, Acts 2 in closing. The church is born. And what a mon monumental day that was. 3,000 are born again. And this church is filled with 3,000 people on fire for the Lord. I can only imagine what that was like. But before that day was over, there was an explosion of 3,000 people in mutual fellowship. And it doesn't say anything about them setting up a conference. It doesn't talk about them starting a Bible study, cell group, any of the church things that we do today. It just says that their lives were poured out in loving, tender mercies to one another. And I pray that that will be the mark for us here and we do it for God's glory so that's my encouragement for you to start off this year dedicate yourself to the body of Christ bless somebody belong to a church give of your talents because we need what you have God has blessed you so tremendously so let us start off this year by loving one another let's love on each other and over fellowship as we have now you know speak to somebody you haven't spoken to share with somebody take someone's number encourage them you don't know what somebody we put on pray faces here but all of us are going through things i put on a pray face going through things pastors going through things pray face all of us their life is tough we put on pray faces and we're good at hiding our our, our hurts but my encouragement is phone somebody how are you doing bro i was thinking about you pray for somebody in your closet love each other is my prayer that we will go back to at least that model of fellowship and loving each other so uh, I will close there and I'll just ask um, Pastor Bev to come and just close.